This podcast is supported by the Icon School of Medicine at Mount Sinai, one of America's leading research medical schools. Icon Mount Sinai is the academic arm of the eight-hospital Mount Sinai Health System in New York City. It's consistently among the top recipients of NIH funding. Researchers at Icon Mount Sinai have made breakthrough discoveries in many fields vital to advancing the health of patients, including cancer, COVID, and long COVID, cardiology, neuroscience, and artificial intelligence. The Icon School of Medicine at Mount Sinai. We find a way. This week's episode is brought to you in part by the Eppendorf and Science Prize for Neurobiology. Are you or one of your colleagues doing great neuroscience? If so, then we encourage you to apply for the prestigious Eppendorf and Science Prize for Neurobiology, an international prize which honors young scientists for outstanding neurobiological research based on methods of molecular, cellular, systems, or organismic biology. Submissions are due June 15th. Visit science.org slash Eppendorf to apply today. Welcome to the Science Podcast for May 13th, 2016. I'm Sarah Crespi. In this week's show, Julia Rosen talks with Hanukkah Rizzo about incredibly ancient rocks that are giving new insight into the formation of the planet. And Catherine Matisik is here with a roundup of stories from our daily news site. Support for the Science Podcast is provided by AAAS, the American Association for the Advancement of Science. Now we have Catherine Matisik, an editor for our online daily news site. She's here to talk about some recent online stories. First up, we have a story on how the Venus flytrap got its taste for meat. Venus flytraps are those rare outliers in the plant world, predator plants. Along with the pitcher plant and the sundew, flytraps can kill and eat insects. But how did they get to that point? What story can we tell about its evolution? This was one of my favorite stories on the site this week. Who wouldn't want to know how the Venus flytrap became a meat eater? For a long time, scientists thought that the flytrap and other carnivorous plants might have evolved by turning their defensive adaptations into offensive weapons. Right. Now researchers have been able to test this idea in a very fine-scale way by looking at the genes involved in these processes. So does the theory hold up? It seems like it might. A new study looked at the genes that were expressed as a Venus flytrap caught and then slowly digested its prey. In this case, a poor little cricket. Scientists found that these flytraps were using the same genes as their non-carnivorous cousins. Can we call them vegans, Sarah? <laughs> yeah, definitely. Okay. So here's how it happens. First, the flytrap relies on an ancient alarm system. It starts ringing when the victim jostles trigger hairs that are located all over the lip of the plant. The hairs generate electrical impulses that stimulate glands to produce a special type of acid. That's the same signal that non-carnivorous plants use to produce self-defense toxins, along with molecules that actually block insects' abilities to break down plant proteins. As part of their counterattack, plants also produce their own enzymes that break down bug and microbe proteins, which I didn't actually realize until I read this story. But in the flytrap, this acid triggers a massive response. Tens of thousands of tiny glands make and secrete these enzymes, which they use to drench the poor, trapped insects. And then we get to 
the digestion part. Okay, this is really cool in my mind, not because, you know, it's a dissolving insect, but because of what they might say about how this mechanism evolved. I'm I'm sure that's what you're thinking, Sarah. (laughs) So the, the evolution part is neat in digestion also, because after a few hours, the glands inside the trap turn on another set of genes that helps the plant absorb nutrients from its meal. It turns out that many of these genes are the same ones that are expressed in the roots of other plants. That means that basically now the roots are on top, absorbing things like nitrogen and other nutrients that would normally come from the soil. I think this is a really good reminder that plants are just like the rest of us living beings. Uh, You know, they evolve with the times. You know, animals turn limbs into wings over time and plants grow roots on top when they have to. Next up, we have a story on building a better wrinkle cream. The story has kind of a cosmetic spin. It basically, uh, it's about a new skin cream that reduces wrinkles and keeps skin moist. And no, this is not a promo. <laughs> so I'm sneaking into the. Are you sure about that, yeah. Sarah? <laughs> but in actuality, it's very technically different from what I've seen in drugstores or infomercials. What makes this? latest beauty product worth reporting on the podcast. Honestly, when I first read this story, I thought I was reading the script for an infomercial. I even told the author to throw in a joke or two. But he responded as good, serious science journalists do and said this technology is a serious business. And it just so happens that some of the scientists are looking to spin this into a business as well. But to get back to your question... What makes it unusual um, is that this new cream has a two-part application. First, patients rub a silicon-based gel onto their skin. The gel is made of hundreds of tiny molecular chains that combine to one another and transform into a thin polymer film. This kind of gel is already used in many cosmetics, but the researchers in this case tested hundreds of new formulations. In the end, they came up with ways of changing its thickness, breathability, flexibility, and durability in ways that had never been done before. After people rub on the first gel, they cover it with a second gel that contains a platinum catalyst. This catalyst triggers a reaction in the first gel, which turns it into a thin, continuous film. Right. So it's like a little bit of a cling film that's adhering to your skin. That's what it sounds like, and that's what it looks like. Does it do the job? Does it lift? Does it tighten? As the film dries, it also shrinks up to 10% depending on the formulation. And when this happens, it pulls the skin taut. In experiments with something that I have a real problem with, eye bags, the film reduced their presence by up to 40%. We have a tight film on the skin that perks up your bags and keeps moisture in. What about clinical or maybe medical applications? The researchers are actually hoping to make this their next step. Right now, 10% of all American adults and 20% of all children suffer from eczema, a condition in which excessively dry skin can lead to rashes and itching so bad it keeps some people up all night long. The new film can also help dry skin retain moisture, at least temporarily. I think it works for about 24 hours. So if they can figure out how to lengthen that period or load the gel with slow-release medicines, they might have a treatment that could help millions. I've heard of people who have eczema who actually apply medicine this way. They'll 
wrap some cling film on in order to keep it close to the skin and keep the skin moist. How do you think that this new product feels? I bet peeling it off might be a little satisfying, kind of like a little pool of Elmer's glue on your hand. I think peeling it off would probably be more fun than putting it on. At this point, we have no idea how breathable it is. You know, so in terms of its comfort over a long period of time might not be worth it. Last up, we have a story on paper pirates. A few weeks ago, Science published a news story about Sci-Hub, a place where research PDFs can be downloaded for free by anyone, circumventing publishers' paywalls. Newswriter John Bohannon obtained data from the pirate site and interrogated it in a bunch of different ways. But the big question was, who uses the service? And the answer... Everyone. Right. Grad students in the developing world, grad students in the developed world, old people, young people, people who probably don't want to reveal their ages. In short, anyone who wants to download a scientific paper quickly. Several weeks back, one of our more enterprising reporters wrote a feature about the site, which hosts 50 million scientific papers and counting. Our story analyzed 28 million download requests over six months to see where they were coming from. The answer was everywhere. In a follow-up survey of 11,000 readers, we found out that 88% of them said it wasn't wrong to download pirated papers. Even more surprising, older folks and people who have never used the site agree. 79% of those 51 and older said it was fine, as did 84% of those who'd never used the site. That's a lot of downloads. And that's a lot of uploads, right? Somebody's putting these PDFs up there. Where did this site come from? The site is the brainchild of one Alexandra Elbakyan, a Kazakhstani neuroscientist who was frustrated when she couldn't find the papers she needed legally or easily. What was needed, she decided, was a system that allowed papers to be shared with absolutely everyone. She had the computer skills and contacts with other pirate websites to make that happen. And so SciHub was born. Elbkayan sees the site as a natural extension of her dream of helping humans share good ideas. But her idea has landed her into legal trouble. She's currently being sued by science publishing giant Elsevier, which also happens to be the publisher with the most requested papers on the site. Right, right. I mean, there are science papers on there, too. We have a paywall. Many of our PDFs and full-text articles are behind it. Somebody is downloading them and uploading them to that site. This is illegal, both the posting and the downloading. Why do people do it? And we asked our survey respondents to answer that question, and we got a lot of responses. Were most of the respondents in our survey big fans of SciHub? Well, as you know, if you decide to take a survey, you're probably either a super fan or a super hater. <laughs> but our respondents were overwhelmingly fans. 59% had used SciHub at least once. And as I said earlier, nearly 90% of all respondents said it wasn't wrong. What do they say about why they were using the site? I mean, they're okay with it, but was there anything pushing them to it? Respondents listed all sorts of reasons, but the most common one was access. 50% said a lack of journal access was the main reason they turned to SciHub. 17% said they used it out of simple convenience, and 23% said they did so because they objected to the profits that publishers make. So it looks like a lot of the people using SciHub already have some form of legal access. 
on a separate question, 37% of respondents who had gotten a pirated journal article from Sci-Hub or somewhere else said they did have legal access. Hmm. Well, so, you know, Sarah, a lot of these people who responded said they have legal access to the papers. And as employees of science, you and I both do. Have you ever used Sci-Hub? I haven't. I'm kind of tempted to see what the search interface is like, because if people really feel like this is the easiest way to get articles, even if they could go through a legal path, maybe we should take a look at it just in terms of improving the efficiency of communication coming out of science. But I have seen people using the ICANN has PDF hashtag on Twitter. Again, I haven't done that, but I've contacted researchers and asked for their papers before. Yeah, it seems to me, and the survey really points this out, that even people who have every legitimate way to access these papers are still using sites like this simply because of their convenience. Okay, what else is on the site this week? We have a story on a eukaryotic cell without an internal power supply, first of its kind, and a story on Earth's ancient atmosphere. On Science Insider, our policy blog, we have a story on the Open Science Awards and a story on the National Microbiome Initiative. Thanks, Catherine. Thanks, Sarah. Catherine Matasik is an editor for our online daily news site. I'm Sarah Crespi. You can check out the latest news in the policy blog, Science Insider, at news.sciencemag.org. There are a lot of things scientists still don't know about Earth's early history. However, geologists have found clues about the planet's past hidden in the chemistry of certain rocks that come from deep in the mantle. I spoke with Hanika Rizzo about how these rocks are providing new insights into the formation of our planet and its core. We have many questions about the Earth's early history. The main reason why we have these questions is that the geological record from that period is very scarce without rocks, so it's difficult to, to study those periods of the Earth. The main questions that we have, of course, is uh, when did life appear and how? When was the beginning of plate tectonics? How the Earth formed and how the Earth evolved towards the planet that we know today with this chemical structure with a metallic core, a mantle, a crust, and an atmosphere. What our study focused is in the uh, questions about core formation, so how the metal separated from the mantle and how it affected the chemical composition of the mantle. Right. So to do that, you studied basalts from Baffin Bay and the Antang Java Plateau in the Pacific Ocean. What's special about these rocks in particular? Both of these locations are what we call large igneous provinces. They were built through uh, massive eruptions of lava that we call flood basalts that we haven't seen in human history. So these are not normal volcanic eruptions. There are previous studies that have reported that these rocks have helium and lead isotopic compositions that suggest that the mantle domains that these lavas are sampling are relatively anti-gassed and primitive. The way the mantle loses their gases is through volcanism. So if there are portions of the mantle that haven't been uh, melted, they have the potential to retain their gases. This is what this data shows, and this is why we were interested in studying these rocks Okay, so you have these rocks that seem to have come from parts of the mantle that have been isolated for a long time, and then you measure the isotopes of tungsten. 
What does that tell you about the source of these lavas? So there's one particular tungsten isotope, the 182 tungsten, that was produced through a radioactive decay of 182 hafnium only during the first 50 million years of the Earth history. So this hafnium tungsten system is only sensitive to this period of time. Not only that, but the hafnium and tungsten are two elements that are very different. The hafnium is what we call a lithophile. Hafnium is going to stay in the mantle, while tungsten is iron-loving. So in the very early stages of planetary formation, when you have this metal separation from the mantle, it's going to take the tungsten with it, leaving the mantle very rich in hafnium. And if it happens early, it will leave a mantle with high 182 hafnium, which with time will decay into 182 tungsten. 182 hafnium doesn't exist anymore, but we can use the 182 tungsten as a proxy to trace metal separation from the planet and also the time when the metal separated from the planet. And the fact that the uh, Baffin and Nongton Java plateau rocks have variations in 182 tungsten suggests that their mantle source has registered a different core formation event from other parts of the Earth's mantle. So that tells you something about how Earth formed. What does it tell you about what's going on in the mantle? Since these 182 tungsten variations had to be created very early in the Earth history, and we're measuring them in relatively modern rocks, it means that the um, mantle domains sampled by these rocks had to survive during almost the whole Earth history, despite of uh, plate tectonics and mantle convection and crustal recycling. Yeah, how is it possible that some parts of the mantle have been isolated since the planet formed? It just seems like it would have all gotten mixed up. Right, and that's a very good question, and we honestly don't have the answer. As you say, the planet is an active planet, and especially in the beginning, the early Earth was hotter, and the convection in the mantle should have been more vigorous, which means that everything that was formed very early should have been erased by this activity. It is even more surprising and difficult to understand knowing that very early we had this giant impact that formed the moon and this giant impact we thought for a very long time should have erased everything that was formed before in the earth. Now there are different models that are coming out of how the moon was formed. So maybe we're thinking now that the moon formed rather through a smaller object that impact the earth that was capable of preserving some mantle domains that were formed during the planetary formation stage. What else do these pockets of primitive mantle tell us about how Earth formed? So it gives us evidence of models that had been suggested before, numerical models, that the core of a planet doesn't form in just one single stage, but it forms in multiple stages. And this is logical because when you see how the planets formed, they form through accretion or a collision of different bodies. And every time you have a collision, the kinetic energy transforms to heat and it's going to increase the temperature of a planet, melting parts of this planet. And the metal has a lower melting point 
So it's gonna it's gonna melt and it's gonna go to the uh, center of a planet. So the planet like the Earth, the American model suggests that it received maybe I don't know ten plus minus five collisions. So every time you have a collision, you have the separation of the metal, and you have a core formation event. And what these primitive mantle pockets have registered is actually different stages of core formation. Do the results at the same time raise any new questions about Earth's early history? The questions that we now have is, what are the dynamics, what were the dynamics, and what are the modern dynamics that allowed the preservation of these early mantle domains in the mantle? Another big question is, how large are these early form mantle domains? Because for now, we have only two large igneous provinces that we analyze that show this, the same information. They show that there's deep parts of the mantle that were created very early, that have registered maybe an earlier metal silicate separation event. But are these just mantle pockets, or is this a big region inside the mantle that survived during the whole history? Hanika, thanks for talking with me. Thank you very much. Hanika Rizzo is a geologist at the University of Quebec at Montreal. She and her colleagues write about core formation in this week's science. Julia Rosin is a freelance science journalist and former AAAS Mass Media Fellow. And that concludes this edition of the Science Podcast. If you have any comments or suggestions for the show, write us at sciencepodcast at aaas.org or tweet to us at Science Magazine. You can subscribe to the show on iTunes, Stitcher, SoundCloud, and many other places, or listen to us on the Science site. The show is a production of Science Magazine. Jeffrey Cook composed the music. I'm Sarah Crespi. On behalf of Science Magazine and its publisher, AAAS, thanks for joining us.